Hello, this is Joel Porter, and on behalf of my friend Steve Rolnick, we'd like to welcome you to the podcast of the Motivational Interviewing and Beyond webinar. Uh, this was our first webinar, and it, we had to figure out how to get it up and running and get it off the ground, and I think in the end we finally got there. And what we wanted to do was have a conversation about listening and the importance of listening in a time of uncertainty that COVID brought. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please let us know if you have any comments or questions and feel free to share it with your friends. People should be able to hear us now, Joel, with luck. Okay, good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Feels, weird. feels kind of weird. Uh, yeah, we'll just wait. We'll wait till we get a pretty good, robust number in, and then we'll jump right in. Whatever you are settling in. Yeah, whatever you say, I'll do, Joe. Okay, James will give us the go. Okay. Okay, we've got five hundred people online now, Stephen. So. Uh... All right. Wow. Hey, good evening, good day, good morning, wherever you are. Welcome to um, welcome to our webinar on motivational interviewing and beyond. And this episode of listening in a time of uncertainty. Um, I'm Joel Porter. I'm living in Gold Coast, Australia. I'm a um, just a little bit about me. I'm a I'm a parent, a clinical psychologist, um, longtime motivational interviewing practitioner and trainer, and um, very excited about hanging out with my good friend Steve and having a conversation and sharing some ideas about listening, particularly in this time when um, the world is in such an uncertain place. Steve, how are you doing? Yeah, I, I'm trying to absorb this all. It's the first time I've ever done this, you know, like you 12, 13,000 miles away and, and, you know, hi Joel and, and hello to everybody who's, who's tuned in. It's our first venture together. Uh, my name's Stephen Rolnick, and I'm talking to you from Cardiff, Wales, in the United Kingdom. I grew up in Cape Town, South Africa, which I return to regularly. And over the last few decades, I guess my journey has been one of being trained as a clinical psychologist. And then I could almost repeat what Joel said, which is I became a motivational interviewing practitioner, therapist, trainer in motivational interviewing. But Joel and I share a, a wider interest in the relevance of all this stuff, and hence the title of the webinar we have today. So what, um, what, what Steve and I have in store, and this, this whole idea of doing this just sort of fell out of a uh, conversation we had um, one evening when we were just chatting about the world and how it is, and we were trying to figure out how we could... Um, how we could do some good and um, share some of what, what we know. We certainly don't feel like we have the final say in, in this topic around listening or motivational interviewing or anything beyond that. Well, I guess we're just a couple of blokes with some ideas who enjoy having a good conversation. Um, so what we have in store tonight is we're gonna cover three topics and, and some of them are pretty big and one of them is what is listening? Um, another one is the mindset of listening. And the final one is some of the skills of listening. And the way we're going to do this is uh, both of us are going to talk, share some stories, 
converse with each other. And then after each, um, after each uh, conversation, we're going to open it up for Q&A. And, you know, and right now what I want to do is I want to introduce our colleague, James Lawrence, who, um, who happens to just be about 10 kilometers up the road from me here in Gold Coast. And um, he's here to make sure everything goes okay. And he's going to do a little bit of housekeeping. Hi guys, yeah, um, James here on the Gold Coast too, and it's a real pleasure to be joining you as well tonight and, and uh, to be joining a lot of like-minded people to discuss um, motivation, interviewing, and in particular listening in, in a time of uncertainty. So thank you, it's, it's a pleasure to be here and I'm really happy to be involved. Brilliant, James, we're glad you're here. Um, so we've gone a little bit over the structure already. So James, if you could just pop up the uh, surprise slide. And um, what I'd like for Steve to do is tell us what this slide's all about. Sure thing, sure thing. Um, we're only gonna use two slides in the whole presentation. And this is one of them. And uh, this is somebody called Lucinda Evans. And she's running a feeding program for children every day and this is getting more and more urgent as the weeks unfold. The location is a place called Lavender Hill in Cape Town in South Africa and there, there are two reasons why I thought we'd share this slide with you. One of them is because it shows us what listening can look like, that it, that it occurs in a context and that one does not need to be a counselor to do this well, which I guess is one of the main points of the webinar. And so between the world of action on the one hand, which is essential at this time, setting boundaries, doing the right thing, looking after each other and other people, on the one hand, and the suffering and experience of people on the other, lies this channel and the potential for listening. So that's the first reason we've got this slide on the board. The second is because at the end of the webinar, we're going to put out a call for help and donations to a not-for-profit project which sits precisely in that suburb of Lavender Hill. So more on that later. And I suggest now we ask James to take us through any housekeeping matters and I'll hand you over to him or to Joel to take us the next step. Absolutely. So just three very quick points from me. We are recording the webinar this evening and we will be emailing you out the recording in the next day or so. Um, and just one quick note, when you do click through to access that video, you can also choose to subscribe to Stephen's monthly email newsletter uh, to keep you informed of future webinars in this series. Um, point two, uh, we will be doing a Q&A at the end of each section of the webinar and you can submit your questions via the Q&A control in your Zoom. Um, please just be mindful though that we do have many hundreds of people online tonight, so we probably won't be able to get to all of your questions. So but we'll do our very best. And finally, we just recommend that you turn off Outlook, Skype, or any other online backups or downloads you may have running just to ensure you get 
the fastest internet possible and hopefully the best quality webinar that we can give you this evening. So that's it for me. Thanks again for joining, uh, joining us tonight. It's, it's great to be involved and I'll now pass you back over to Joel and to Stephen. All right, thanks James. Um, all right, well, let's jump right in and um, maybe, um, maybe start with the biggest question of the night and one question where I imagine there's not a lot of consensus amongst uh, people who think about listening. Um, but our question, our first question is, is what is listening? What does it involve? Yeah, Joel, and we thought we'd, we'd, we'd start with me here and I agree, it's a, an interesting question, what, what is listening? And I thought I would start with a rather simple story and I, I I guess we all have these stories, you know, this, where you have a striking experience that uh, changes things for you. And that's what happened to me with this. I was driving up through the wet, windy, dark hills of mid Wales, just with my seven year old son in the back seat. And it was getting seriously wet. And so I decided to put the windscreen wipers on fast and sort of made this announcement to him. I'm going to put them on fast. And Joel, from the back of the car, there was a bit of silence. And then he said, that must make driving quite difficult for you, Dad. And I thought, hang on. I, I felt this sense of feeling very connected to this guy because he, he had empathized with me. He, he, he didn't ask a question. Um, he was curious, he felt safe there in the back of the car, and he just threw this guess out there. And, and honestly, it, it, it changed the way I look at not what listening is, but what the potential for the skill is, which I can return to in a moment. But, you know, I'm wondering what you notice in that story. Well, lots of things. And, and right off, it, it sounds like it's one of those kind of moments where you had an experience that just pulls some things together in an instant. You know, I'm, I'm struck by, and this, this, was your, this was your young son, wasn't it? How old was he? He was about seven. About seven? Yeah. And I'm, I'm just struck by all the things that he or most people might have said, like, be careful, you know? It could yeah. be really dangerous, yeah. You know, and, and could have warned you, or or. Um, well, when we gonna get there, Dad? Yeah, yeah. Or or just ignored it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, well, and you know, in in motivational in interviewing lingo, that's quite the complex reflection he gave you. Yeah, and we'll get back to that. Well, I'll return to that comment, but you know. What struck me was that I suppose it was a radical shift in the sense that I, I suppose I had this hat on my head, which is like, if you like, I know about listening and I'm a psychologist and I teach people about listening. And I just had to take that hat off because basically a kid can do it. And I've been wondering about the ramifications of this ever since. And I, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to highlight some, but I thought I'd take this opportunity to kind of say, what, what my understanding of listening is. And then I'll, I'll mention what I think the ramifications are, if that's okay. 
Am I making sense? George? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, carry on. Like just to be a bit analytic for, analytical about it for a moment. Step one is feeling empathy for someone else to stand in someone else's shoes. And those of you that don't know about it, plug Empathy Museum into Google, for example. There's a wonderful group of people in London who've developed something called an Empathy Museum. And if you, if you read around that and listen to what they're saying, it's quite clear they adhere to the dictionary definition of empathy, which is this ability to um, put yourself in somebody else's shoes. But if that is step one, an internal experience, and you're in conversation with someone else, how do they know that you're feeling that empathy? Now, from, mm. from my training in psychology, and I can't help putting that hat on, there's, there is a step two, which is very direct. I mean, they might notice it because you're looking intently at them or you, 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 you're giving off the impression of being interested in their experience. But the step two, which we, you know, can uh, acknowledge the fantastic contribution of Carl Rogers from client-centered counseling, is step two is you take that internal experience and you emit a verbal behavior, if you like. You make the link with them in, in that you say something so that they realize you're standing in their shoes. Mm. So... That's what, that must make driving difficult for you, Dad, was something that he said that demonstrated pretty clearly that he understood my experience. And it's that second step, that verbal behavior, that I guess you and I call listening. And there are a number of other phrases for this or terms for this, which maybe are worth clarifying. There's reflective listening is another word for it. Empathic listening. And I think active listening. active listening, paraphrasing is sometimes used. But the point is that in making the verbal statement, it creates an empathic connection. Absolutely. Between the two of us. So and, and, it, and it gives a it gives a person the, the real clear message that I'm trying to understand where you're coming from yeah. and what your dilemma is or what you're thinking or feeling about this but you're not just repeating it right back to them. Yeah. Cause that would get, that would get weird for a seven year old really quick too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now wow. I guess, you know, I, I want to try and express why I found this so profound, <laughs> this experience, right? Please do. Because, because when I took my, when I took my expert hat off and thought about it, um, the first point's obvious, which is that, Empathic listening isn't some specialist thing that only psychologists really know about. And, you know, in a, almost in a patronizing way, can pass this on to other people who don't know about it. This is something that um, we have inside all of us, including children. Mm. And I feel disappointed that so few psychologists have made this point and have, have really tried to pass on the knowledge about this to, to, to the lay public, with the exception of Carl Rogers, who was a wonderful guy. And towards the end of his life, he um, was um, suggesting what exactly the conclusion that I reached as a result of that drive up through Mid Wales, which is that it's really important to help kids improve their empathic listening skills 
as, as no doubt, as the ego develops more. And there's 101 ways of doing this. And they do it naturally anyway. Whenever they, they, they play role play games, they're yeah. actually in other people's worlds. So they're, they're super skilled at this. But sadly, I think this is hammered out of us in school and to some extent at home. So kind of my feeling is that this should be at the center of the educational curriculum. And with careful and thoughtful and creative handling, this can become like a skill like kicking a ball. You know, some people get really skilled at kicking a ball, but we can all kick a ball. So why not help everybody get better at the skill? So that's my sort of current feeling about it. Well, one, one of the things that, that I've experienced, and I have a little story to kind of highlight it as well, too, is that I've, not, I've, I've, had, the, I've had the pleasure and, and the real privilege um, to do motivational interviewing training, just like you, Steve, a lot of different places around the world, and like a lot of our colleagues get the opportunity to do. And in doing that, you, one of the things that I've found is that, and, it, and you know, this, you don't have to be a psychologist to figure this one out, is that empathy and compassion are sort of universal. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I'll tell you the, the short version of the story is that uh, a few years ago, I was doing some um, work with the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime in Myanmar. Yeah. And I got the opportunity to go there three different times. And the second time I was there, and I was living in New Zealand at the time, and it was a long trip, and I was really jet lagged. And I got in at night, and the thing started the first thing in the morning, and I went down the lobby, and, and these lovely uh, psychiatrists came up to me, and they said, oh, Dr. Porter, Dr. Porter, would you be okay to do a role play at the workshop? And I'm like, sure, no problem. I, I like doing role plays. And I said, when do you want to do it? And they said, well, the guy's on the way up. We, go, we have a patient coming from the local alcohol treatment ward, and he's on the way right now. Wow. And I thought, wow, what a way to start a workshop in translation. So yeah. anyway, um, they bring in this, this gentleman, and he sits down across from me, and he was either really nervous or, and or detoxing still. And this other fellow sits between us to the side as a translator, and they just kind of said, okay, go, go do motivational interviewing. And so I just started, I just started the conversation, you know, with the basics of motivational interviewing, asking some open-ended questions and offering reflections. And the more I would ask about his world, the more he would talk, which would give me more, more um, information that I could form reflections on. And we carried on for, for quite a while and I was thinking, I'm not sure if this is even making sense. Does this culturally translate from, from a Western culture to a, to a Burmese culture? And at the end of it, uh, we finished up and I asked the translator to ask him one more question. And I, said, um, and I said, could you ask him if there was anything about this conversation that was helpful? And he said, yes. And I said, could you please tell me what that is? He said, it was the way that you were, you were basically repeating what I was saying back to me in a different way that I said it. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and across the barriers of language and culture. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I could tell the more attuned empathically I got with this, with this man, 
the more he wanted to tell me more about his world, even though he was a, a rice farmer from Burma and I'm this strange psychologist fellow that's come up from New Zealand and he's in this weird setting that I'm sure he was voluntold to come do. Um, it's got this feeling. But it was a bridging moment for me with motivational interviewing. Yeah. It was like, yeah, this does translate. Or with listening. Yeah, just yeah. listening. And it's got this feeling of getting out of someone's way. Absolutely. Getting out of I wasn't there to do anything to him, only to try to understand him and, and try to understand his dilemma and how alcohol may or may not fit in with all that. We didn't really get that far into it. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of a, quite a famous quote from the football or soccer world from somebody called Johan Crave, who said mm. something, something like this, that um, football is a very simple game. Um, playing skillful football is one of the hardest things to do. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something we can... When we get to the skills of listening, that, that'll, that'll reemerge for sure. Yeah. Because listening is something that we all do all the time. Yeah. Um, but what we listen to and how we respond to it can make all the difference. And that's the thing that you can practice. And we will move on to that. But it, it's also striking what you didn't do. And I'm, I'm thinking both of you and the little boy in the back of the car. Okay. You, you, you both said things that amounted to getting out of somebody's way and just showing them that you understand their experience. Um, you might have asked the odd question, but, and questions can certainly help with listening, but you didn't have a, an artificial conversation in which you're just asking one question after another. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, it sounds like you didn't cut across the person or interpret or warn or counter anything he was saying. Hence my reference to sort of like getting out of the way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. Let's it's a huge part. Of yeah. it. It's a huge part of it. It's just Sorry, part I'm... of the mindset of it to be able to have a mindset that you can get out of the way. And, and the good news is that's our second uh, topic. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to move on to that. But I thought... I also noticed, and this doesn't apply to, to the kid in the back of the car, but certainly to a visiting expert going into Burma, situation like that, it's very tempting to try and solve someone's problem. You know, I, I wouldn't have blamed you for feeling a little bit anxious in a situation like that and, oh. wanting, and, <laughs> and wanting to kind of sort of step in and go, okay, now let me tell you. And you know, we call this the writing reflex in, in, uh, in the healthcare and criminal justice world, where you, with a good heart, you see a problem and you try and fix it for someone. Mm. Where, whether that's education, healthcare, sport, or whatever. And it's not always a dysfunctional thing, but if you want to listen, that's something you don't want to use. Is the, is the writing reflex. It's the biggest right. roadblock. Yeah. It's the biggest roadblock to, to listening. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, and, and it, even the writing reflex comes from a place of wanting to be helpful. But, yeah. but sometimes we can be too helpful at the wrong time. Yeah. And in, in my imagination, thinking of that story you've just told, 
you, you did say I asked a few questions. And if you like, if, if asking questions is like knocking on a door, listening is what happens when you go inside. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of, of a story of Steve Berg Smith, our good friend uh, from the United States, a trainer there, who was once in northern Alaska running a workshop and an, and an elder from this Indian tribe, well into her 80s, sat at the back of the room for something like three days. It was a three-day workshop and she never said a word. And just as the workshop ended, she came forward and she said, this is like going into someone's house. Please pay respects to them and restrain yourself from rearranging their furniture. And it, it sounded like that Burmese person with a drinking problem, he appreciated you not rearranging his furniture. Absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, we won't, you know, this, we won't dive, won't dive into this too much. But what that, what that Inuit woman elder had said basically summarized what Carl Rogers said in two paragraphs in his seminal book, Client-Centered Therapy, about what empathy is, about coming into somebody's world and not disturbing it too much, but really trying to get understand, understand what's going on and also not getting lost in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm wondering now, I'm looking at the clock and I'm wondering now whether we can have a break for Q&A, James. Yeah. Good idea. I was just about to, um, to interrupt, but I didn't want, uh, you were in full flow, so <laughs> I, didn't want to, I didn't want to break your train of thought. So as you rightly say, we'll take a, a quick break for some questions. Um, and we've, we've had some wonderful questions coming in. So the first one I'd like to offer you comes from Russell Earnshaw, who wonders, are there any downsides to listening and empathy? Wow. That's a big one. That's a real big one. Joel, I've got some reflections to offer you. And thank yeah, you. yeah. I'll take a crack at it after you. Wow, it's a big one, this. Are there downsides to listening and empathy? And thank you, Russell, for that question. Um, Perhaps I can say yes, very personally, because I had an experience of severe burnout. And there is a phrase called empathy fatigue. And self-awareness and reflection about what I was going through was sorely lacking for me. I had a diary full of appointments, a family back home, um, and I burnt out. And I would say I was suffering from empathy fatigue. Um, so that is a downside, but I'm not convinced it's a kind of a problem with empathy. It, it, it felt to me more like a problem with my own self-regulation. And um, I think we've all come across people working on the front line line of healthcare, policing, wherever, who will say that they can only survive by not empathizing too much. Mm. And, and, and the sort of image of putting a, a flame-proof suit on has coherence for some people. A, 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 a pediatric neurosurgeon I met recently said that. He said, I've got to get on with the job here. And so there's a certain natural protectiveness to 
to regulating yourself so that you don't suffer as a consequence of empathizing too much. But could I say something provocative here, Joel? Maybe, maybe. Never about, shy away from that, Steve. About a criticism about empathy, which is, um, does it always mean when you're empathizing with somebody that you've got to feel their experience deeply? And I'm not so sure about this. Um, I, I used to see sexually abusing men as clients. Now, I didn't find it difficult. I used to find it possible to empathize with them, but I never found it difficult. In other words, I managed to detach my kind of own feelings about their behavior from my ability nonetheless to empathize with them. Oh. So I'm also reminded of what our dear friend Terry Moyers, a motivational interviewing trainer says, I saw her in a, in a workshop here in Cardiff where she stood up in front of the people and said, I'm not a particularly warm and friendly person, but I'm damn good at empathic listening. Right? In other words, being empathic doesn't mean being warm and friendly. And technically what we're saying is empathic listening involves saying something to someone that shows that you understand their experience. Yeah. You might not have immersed yourself in it. So, you know, I guess I'm confused about this. And uh, uh, I do have one other point about empathy, but I feel like it's time to hand over to you, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I was thinking, I think, I think Russell's question was about listening. Was that right, James? Is there a downside to listening? No. That's down right. Okay. Yeah. Any downside? But, 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 but a part of what we're talking about is listening is 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 half of the equation of being empathic um and and steve I, I think we could carry on talking about empathy and can you teach people empathy and and where does it come from and and all of the and all of these robust things around empathy all night and i and i, I think that's i think the, these are great things for us to be talking about what i just want to get back to is there a downside to listening um the only thing that, I, that came to my mind was it, sometimes just listening isn't enough. Uh, right. Sometimes people need to be heard, but they also need some good guidance, information um, to make choices about, or even direction when they feel really stuck. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. But if you just think all I'm gonna do is listen, in my experiences of learning client-centered therapy years and years ago, all you did was go round and round in circles. Yeah. And there are so many people I've, I've, I've worked with learning motivational interviewing over the years who go, I just keep stuck on the merry-go-round. Okay. And because they're, they're doing very empathic listening, but the client or the person is needing a little bit more. Yeah. You know, that doesn't mean they need to be told what to do necessarily, but they need some sort of um, options yeah. to work so, with. So listening is just one element of helpfulness. Yes. And there yes. are others. And we'll go on to describe what motivational interviewing is with luck a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but I feel, uh, Joel, I've got to mention that there is a, there's somebody called Paul Bloom who wrote a book called yeah. Against Empathy. 
Okay. Now, this is quite deep stuff, and I don't think we've got time for this. I don't think James is going to let us. Okay. James is going to tell us he's got one or two more questions or whatever. I have. There's some fantastic questions. Okay. I, I think we'll save Paul for another, Paul Bloom's work for another chunk conversation, Steve. Okay, yeah, that's a good decision. I trust it. James? Okay, well, uh, Mr. Paul Shawcross is wondering or asks, I understand the concept of active listening and empathetic responses. However, I still really struggle to stop myself responding with a solution slash problem solving response. Do you have any <laughs> tips? <laughs> yeah, we'll get on to that in a moment, okay? When we talk about the mindset, I think it's lovely, it's beautiful. But when we talk about the mindset of listening, so I'm not fobbing you off, when we talk about the mindset yeah. of listening, I will, and we will highlight how you okay. can restrain yourself, okay? Because you're talking I, probably about the writing reflex kicking in. And we'll talk about I just want to say it's not an either or. You know, you don't listen or not or respond. You can do both. In some ways, timing is really important and knowing what to listen for can help you with the timing, but we'll jump back into that. Yeah. Okay, perhaps one more then um, from Elizabeth Anastasiadi, and I hope I pronounced your surname right there, Elizabeth, and she's wondering, when declaring empathy, is there a risk of making assumptions? might be better to wonder whether a situation is difficult for somebody instead of stating it. Yes, there is a risk. And, and being and, and doing this sort of empathic listening, um, one of the things that, that for me that it's clear is what I'm not doing is I'm not doing interpretive listening. I'm not trying to interpret what I think the client is experiencing and wanting them to, to take that on board or, or mull it over. I, I think that's a really important, that's an important thing to do for sure. The, the other thing, and you know, again, this is real what I've learned practicing motivational interviewing and, and person-centered therapy over the years is that when you have a good relationship with somebody and you're doing more than just saying sounds like what I think you're saying, what I hear you saying, and you're speaking to the person, if you get misattuned with them, they'll correct you. They'll say, no, no, it's not like that. And then I can say, well, sorry about that. What, what, what is it like for you? And they, they, will, they will work actively in the relationship to help me get better tuned in with what they're saying. That's what came to mind. It's a great question. Yeah, so you're saying that Actually, you're, the person you're speaking to is your best teacher. Yes. I, I remember back in my very first training with in motivational interviewing in New Mexico with Bill and Terry in the late 90s. Um, Bill walked on the, uh, I walked out in front of us and said, uh, I'm not going to teach you how to do motivational interviewing. And I'm like, what? I just flew halfway across the country for this. He said, your clients are going to teach you how to do it. We're going to give you a map and a compass. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of that difference between an eagle and a mouse. That, that part of your mind is a bit like an eagle, watching what's going on, learning from experiencing, watching the, the reaction of the person you're speaking to, and the mouse in you is responding moment to moment. And it seems like... That's a nice that analogy. ...is sometimes a helpful distinction. Yeah. 
except I'm not trying to win. <laughs> no, get it, yeah. yeah. James? Yeah, perhaps we can squeeze in one more. Um, okay. This is from David. Is empathy, is empathy something we can really improve or is it a biological gift? So I guess that's the nature versus nurture debate in some respects. Yeah, I just think, you know, what that kid in the backseat taught me, right, was that if, if things like this are natural to you, curiosity, particularly curiosity, a fairly uncluttered mind, um, a lack of distraction, then you can empathize. So um, I've noticed it. If, I know, if we notice it in very, very young kids, they're imaginative and curious. I'm not sure how to answer the question. We can all get better at it. I, I, think, I think of it kind of like temperament. You know, I, I think that may, maybe some people or are, are have some, maybe there is, you know, we, we're not just one thing. So we're not just our genetics and we're not just our environment and we're just not just our, 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 our phenomenal psychological world. But I wonder if, you know, there are, you know, some people who might be more predisposed to being empathic than other people. Uh, uh, the environment that they're, that they're in. I hate it, Joel. I absolutely hate it. We've done such an Olympic gold medal level job of squashing this capacity out of children. We're not in a position to pass judgment. No, no, no Steve, I'm not saying that we need to, we need to kind of do that. It just seems, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to think about that, Steve. But <laughs> I, at, least, at least in adults, at least in adults. And, and, and uh, you know, having two kids myself, yeah. you know, I, I can see the difference of what, how two kids can be grown raised by the same two parents in the same house yeah. and have different levels of empathy. Yeah, so there's difference in temperament. I'm just provoking you, Joel. I'm not being... Please do. Yeah, yeah. That's what we wanted. Okay. Okay, All gents, right. perhaps, we should, perhaps we should move on now to, to section two. The mindset. Um, well, here you go. I'm just going to jump in. I'm going to start off with my little story on this one. And this is a, this is a quick story. And it's a, it's a training story that... Um, that, um, that I experienced as a trainee when I was doing my um, pre-doctoral stuff at the University of Washington at the Student Counseling Center. And I had, I had a lovely, absolutely brilliant supervisor named Barbara Jacobson. And um, we used to have to videotape every one of our sessions. And um, after she got to know me and, and we had a, a really lovely um, relationship, um, I remember I was uh, put on this video and about halfway through it, she reached over and pressed pause. And she looked at me and she said, Joel, I think it's really important about right now that you take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> what were you like before then? I mean, why did, why did she say that? Uh, I think, I think, you know, I think I, I think I was trying to be really helpful. And I was trying to help somebody make sense out of something they were struggling with because it was making me unsettled, you know? And I remember the client, I remember the session, I remember the moment of all the clients I've seen over these years. And I think, I think before that, I thought I knew more than I did. Yeah. You know? 
you know? It's kind of like being a parent. I thought I would be a different parent than I was until I had kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it reminds me, it, it reminds me of the experience I had. I was in my very first placement as a clinical psychologist. And the psychiatrist was in, it was in child guidance clinic or something. The psychiatrist came up to me and said, I want to tell you something, young man. Um, you'll never really be able to help people if you're so enthusiastic. <laughs> and I hated him for it, you know. Uh, for years, I hated him for it. And, and of course, I realized he was right in a way. Because I was so enthusiastic, I was jumping in with this idea, that idea, that idea. And, you know, experience over the years uh, in work, and forget about with kids as well, kind of definitely teaches us to hold back and to, yes. and to take the cotton wool out of their ears. So it's a, it's a wonderful story that, and uh, yeah, well, both of them are quite similar. And you know, when, and as I take that forward into into how I think about my own work and and supervising other people and training and coaching other people, it's something I heard you say when you came down to Melbourne for one of our motivational interviewing things. And you may not even remember it, but you got up and you started talking about how important it is to declutter your mind. You know, and I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. That when you go in to wanting to listen to somebody, particularly when you don't have all the answers, like these uncertain times, um, it's really important to kind of get out of the way in a way where I can kind of set all of my hypotheses and my wonderings and my diagnostic stuff just let it all go and really try to tune in to what this person is saying and, and trust that engaging in that process will, 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 will work, that it works. And it does, and surprisingly. Yeah, and that's the subject of, of this webinar. We're not saying other things aren't helpful, but in this time of uncertainty, we see in Lucinda Evans in that photograph, a, a sort of loving kindness being down on the same level as this child where she's no doubt this is a channel for healing and growth in that child that she, that she is a privileged witness to. And she is demonstrating, I think, the most beautiful humility in coming down to the child's mm. level like that and just being with the child because that kid could probably be worried about a fire in a shack next door, why the grown-ups are shouting, no idea why it's so hungry. There's a lot going on. And, you know, in this time of uncertainty, listening as an act of loving kindness um, is why we decided to put this webinar on. Yeah. But, you know, Joel, I'd like to just like be a little bit more specific about what is the mindset involved in listening and I've got some ideas that really only came to me in the last couple of months and um, I'd be interested to know what you think of them. Yeah I'll be interested to hear about it. The question is what sort of mindset do you need to be in if you want to listen to somebody? You know I've talked about enthusiasm, you've talked about talking too much as being not what you want but this idea of clutter I, I came up with this idea recently of three C's that you want to let go of. 
if you want to get into the mindset of listening. One of them is clutter, which for a number of years I've realized for me was pretty major. I want to let go of clutter from my mind. And Lucinda Evans's face on that playing field seems to emit that. I'm just open for you at this point in time. So that's letting go of clutter. But the other two C's I've, I've been laughing at, which is, the other for me is cleverness. You want to let go of cleverness. And the third is complexity. So I can say to you, Joel, that when I'm listening well, I'm succeeding in letting go clutter, cleverness, and complexity. The question then is, to get into that state of mind, what do you hold on to? Obviously, it's not, you're not completely blank. And then just this week, I came up with three C's there as well. Okay. Which is what you want. If you let go of cleverness, complexity, and clutter, what I find useful to hold on to is being curious, calm, and compassionate. Those three. And, and James, if you could put that slide of Lucinda Evans up again. I want to ask you a question, Joel. James okay. might not be there. He might, he might or might not be with us right now. Okay. Uh, Joel, I'm putting it to you that Lucinda on the ground there is demonstrating curiosity, calm, and compassion. And she's not trying to be clever, complex, or clutter her mind with too much. So that's what I'm wondering. I wonder if that's helpful for capturing the, the mindset involved in being, in listening. You know, it's not just about being warm and friendly, which is a very common uh, idea in sport and in education, that if I just put my arm around people and I'm nice and friendly, I'm showing them empathy. We're actually saying this goes a little bit further than that. Yeah. No, I, I like your, I like your, um, your six C's there, Steve. You know, I was wondering what you were going to come up with as on the other side of it, you know, and, and, and one of the things that, um, that I really enjoy about doing motivational interviewing is, is it's all about, I think one of the key attributes of doing it well is being genuinely curious about what's going on with another human being, trying to understand that. And, 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 um, and am I and, and doing motivational interviewing or at least having a framework of how you're going to listen to somebody helps to, helps to help you regulate your own emotions or control your own reactions to what's well, going on, which helps you stay calm. Letting go of cleverness is, Boy, I wish you had been my supervisor back then, because I think that's what I was trying to be, is clever, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, to let that go is a real, is a real treat. Isn't to know that I don't have to solve this problem or have all the answers or yeah. come up with the most brilliant thing to say that's going to create an epiphany and everything's going to change rapidly. Yeah. But do, do you think there's a risk of us falling into a sort of trap here, which you could call a sort of... An, kind of nerdy expert psychologist trap. It's all very well, and here's the trap. It's all very well for us psychologists 
who used to sitting in a calm environment, we professionally trained to listen to other people, when in fact, actually in everyday life, it's much harder to listen. Because oh. you, do you see what I'm saying? Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely, it is. You know, even in my home with the people I love the most, you know, sometimes it's hard to listen because there's just so much going on. Well, the more you love them, I find, the more concern I've got, the more my mind gets cluttered with this and that. So it's easy for us to go on about being calm and uncluttered and simple. But actually, in, in everyday life, it, although this is a skill that we've all got, like the way the little yeah. kid did in the back of the car, I, I really feel that, that like if we'd been educated in a way to nurture the skill and to learn self-regulation, in all educational environments, whether it's sports, schools, whatever, um, it'll be much easier for folk to listen when the heat's up. That's when it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think of how many misunderstandings happen because people aren't listening to each other. Um, because either they have their needs, agendas, or desires ahead of what's going on. And, and, and at home now, I'm also finding that um, things can get a little bit hectic and heated and fearful. And I have to remind myself actually to make time to just be with the kid sure. in some kind of play activity so that he can, he can feel contained and safe. And then I can start to listen to him. I mean, one of the things that I've just found here and in Australia, we're, we're not as... Um, tragically affected as you guys are in the UK or in New York or in Spain and Italy. That's not to say that, that's not to say that, that the COVID-19 isn't an issue here, but when I look at the graphs and I look at how fortunate we are with the numbers that, that get posted every day and how the curve is going, I still find that, that I have to have a mindset, you know, of being at home, of being, of being, um, going to the shops because, to walking my dog because I walk next to somebody and they wanna, you know, they, we've, we've passed enough that they wanna share that they've had a real crappy day, you know? Yeah. Or it's getting hard, yeah. that kind of, you know, there has to be a mindset going into day-to-day -day interactions with people knowing that we're all struggling with a, a very similar thing in different ways. And as people come out of lockdown, um, the world's not going to be the same. And no. it's going to be disturbing. And I would place very high priority on helping people feel heard and understood. I guess that's what's uniting both of us, isn't it? Yeah. And, and you just don't have to have all the answers or provide a solution when there actually is no solution. Yeah. Can I, can, can I shift focus slightly? I'm just looking at the time. We, 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 we're doing okay. okay. Um, I am. Um, no, I think I'm going to leave that story, actually. Just looking at the clock. I'm, I had another story for you. I'm going to leave it because I think that um, Joe is probably going to want us to do Q&A. And that's okay. absolutely fine, James. It's a good audible. Yeah.
Okay, so perhaps we could revisit that that question from Paul then. Um, and he, if I just remind you of that, so he asked, I understand the concept of active listening and empathetic responses. However, I still really struggle to stop myself responding with a solution slash problem solving response. Any tips? Yeah. yeah, Paul, I would say, you know, think about those six C's. Um, and I, I, I think number one is to notice what's happening inside you, which is exactly what you've done. You notice this inside you, and you notice this reaction inside you. And that's a wonderful platform for stopping yourself, I guess. When you, when you notice yourself doing it, stopping yourself. And I'm hoping that when we go on to the, the, the skill of, of, of reflective listening or empathic listening, it'll kind of click for you in that you'll see that you can actually swing straight across to listening in a situation like that when you have that kind of realization. But I think, you know, I'm hoping the guideline of those six C's will be of, of help to you. But it does start with you and you've started in the right place, Paul. How about I, I'd like to, I'd like to kind of share something I've picked up from one of our Minty colleagues along the way in terms of, probably Bill, in terms of um, kind of a, a uh, uh, I guess it's part of a mindset or maybe even a, a short definition of motivational interviewing, um, which is, you know, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to have a conversation with someone where they can come up with their own arguments and reasons for change, and I'm not the one who's trying to install them into, into the person. I'm not trying to persuade them to do what I, I think they should do or what I think would be best for them, but I'm, I'm trying to have a, I'm trying to interact with them in a way where they can hear themselves talk out loud about what their own ideas and options are around trying to make some change. And quite often, people are pretty, people are pretty clever, you know, and they, 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 they can say, you know, you know, maybe I could do this, or I hadn't thought about that, but that sounds like an idea, and I can reflect that back, or I can summarize it back to them, where I'm not the one saying, I think you should, or here's what other people do that I've worked with, um, say, you know, it's kind of keeping your powder dry, <laughs> you know. And just giving people time to come to their own, come to their own decisions, but you can facilitate and guide the conversation. Okay, here's an interesting statement from Chloe Green, who wonders or who states, "I think there is a big difference between hearing and listening. People often think they are listening when really they are only hearing." Do you have any comments on that? I totally agree with you. Um, listening is not just a question of hearing or having the internal, you might have the internal experience, as we've said. Yeah. Chloe, it, it's completely congruent with what we're saying. You, 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 it's one thing to hear. It's another thing to check out with the person that what you've heard and are inferring about their experience is their experience. And that's where the, the beauty of an empathic listening statement comes in. Yeah. Totally agree with you, Chloe. Yeah, I, I agree, and I can't add anything to that without talking about personal conversations. 
Okay, maybe time, for, maybe time for one more then. Um, okay. This comes from Alberto Gonzalez from, from Spain who wonders, what is motivational interviewing? Can you describe it in simple language? <laughs> it's already, already chucked my idea out there. Why don't you go? Yeah, yeah, you mentioned it a few times, Joe. And um, I, I think the best way to do this is probably to show you what it looks like. And I know that in, in our final section of this webinar on the skills involved, um, we've got a transcript to show you. And rather than be too clever now and try and capture what motivational interviewing is in a few words, which I can do, why don't we wait until we get to that transcript and I can say to you, that's what it looks like. Mm. That's what it feels like. Those are the skills. So if you don't mind, let's just wait a few minutes because we'll be onto that quite soon. You know what would have been fun if time wasn't an issue, Steve? Yeah. Would be you and I to do like a role play and do a demonstration. We can, we can put that in the, in, the, in the maybe next time box. Yeah, yeah, we can do, certainly do a webinar on that because <clears throat> it's obviously the case that you don't get better and improve your skills unless you have the courage to fail. We know that from lots of arenas. So I won't. And just, and just for, just for people to know that you know there there are some really good demonstrations of motivational interviewing on on YouTube. You know. I can't point you to any particular one, but people can listen to them and, and, and kind of start figuring it out for themselves. And I, I think the point to make here is that motivational interviewing it, it, it is founded on Rogers' client-centered counseling. And it's a yeah. particular form of it that is focused on purposefully on change. Okay. So maybe that, that's a helpful way of putting it. So, but what we're talking about today is primarily that foundation. Yeah. And listening. How, and how listening, listening is, is then, sorry? I was going to say listening is, is the key skill of motivational interviewing. It's the key skill and how it's used in motivational interviewing will come on to in a moment. But yeah. the subject of this webinar is really about listening in a time of uncertainty. Okay, well, we're, we're an hour in now, so perhaps that's a good time to move on now to section three. All right. So, so Steve, let me hear what you think about this, because I know that you're a, um, I know you're a jazz fan. I know that yeah. that's a, a type of music that you, that you enjoy. Um, and I, did, I didn't really kind of get into jazz music until my early 20s when I started hanging around with some with some good friends that are still just some of my best friends now. And I, I didn't understand it that much when I first heard it because I was a, you know, a rock and roller. And it sounded like just a cacophony of instruments, you know, kind of doing their own thing, particularly when they'd put on people like Ornette Coleman and, and some of Miles Davis's stuff. And, and I didn't understand it, but they actually taught me how to listen to it. They taught me what was happening within the ensemble and how they were playing together and how they would go apart and why, you know, one, one, you know, one guy was playing this way and the other guys were playing that way. And, and once I could start 
listening to what was going on, then the bigger picture came together and I got it. And once I got it, then it just goes deeper and deeper. And it's such a lovely way of enjoying music that just keeps rewarding itself the more I listen to it. Um, so I think for me, as somebody whose who's, who's musical instrument is the hi-fi, and I don't have a, a, a background in music theory or anything like that, it really took some instruction for me to actually understand what was going on and learn how to listen to it in a way in which it didn't feel like it was moving in different directions and, and wasn't pleasant to listen to. So that you threw yourself into the challenge of learning more about this subject. Yes. Yeah. And, and I needed people to guide me a little bit. Yeah. And you found yourself enjoying the experience. Oh, absolutely love it. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's open doors to all kinds of music from there. And, and it, it's kind of your eagle in your mouse, right? Because, you know, yeah. and it's like listening. There's all this going on here, but then sometimes you just want to pay attention to what the saxophone player's doing. You okay. know, but you want to hold it all together at the same time because it's not just one person. I was wondering what the links were for you between that story and that experience and the conversation in which you're listening. I think part of that was people listening to my therapy work and giving me good feedback and pointing out to me what I wasn't hearing right. and asking me why I chose to focus on one thing versus another thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Particularly when clients have a way of kind of repeating back what they're saying when you're not getting it because you're thinking about something else. Yeah, 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 yeah. So someone's helping you to notice the patterns. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And the rhythm of the conversation, too. Yeah. And a conversation where listening is happening looks and feels very normal. It's not discordant. If we're going to start referring to musical images, it's not a discordant conversation. It, 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 it's got a musicality to it. And... Um, I've noticed this, you know, I mean, this might seem a bit weird, but I've noticed that if you take core communication skills like open questions, empathic listening statements, affirmation, summaries, these are four core communication skills, and you annotate a conversation using just the abbreviation, you know, O-A-R-S or whatever, you find a pattern emerges. And when, when I'm listening to somebody and not solving problems, because that's what it seems is the appropriate thing to do, it has a musicality. And I, can, yeah. I, can almost, I can almost see it as first you have an O, oh, you often have an open question, that's like knocking on the door, but then you have a few R's and the occasional A before the next open question. And so you can almost develop something akin to a musical score um, in a conversation. And uh, I guess when we move on to, which maybe now's a good time, uh, to the transcript that we know is prepared for us to show people, 
will see elements of that musicality. You reckon, yeah? You reckon good time to yeah, move Yeah, let's on? go. Okay, James, if you can just hold that back for a moment. Just let me, um, you can pull it back, James. Yeah, sorry, guys. I just thought I'd give you a bit of context. And, and the question is, what, what, what does listening look and feel like? Uh, and what does motivational interviewing look and feel like? And I thought instead of trying to be clever and explain all this verbally, why don't we dive into a, 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 a single transcript? Now, I want to thank Dr. Bob Mash in Cape Town, South Africa, because it was he that sent this to me after a visit out there. And this is a transcript taken from a training exercise in South Africa. And I believe this is an actual transcript of a training transcript. I'm not sure this is exactly what happened in practice. It doesn't matter. It's a lovely piece of music. And that's what I'm, uh, I'm wanting to highlight here. Okay. But the content is, a mother walks into a rural clinic and both her and the child are HIV positive. There's a lot of pressure on the practitioner here who has other people standing in the hot sun not well. What does skillful practice look like? Mm. And, and where does listening fit into this? Because we often hear, I hear it in sport, education, healthcare, I don't have time not I don't have time to listen. And what this exchange confirms to me is that you don't have time not to listen. Okay, so I know that's a bit provocative, but I would say the less time you have, the more important it is to listen and connect. Okay. But what I'm going to ask you to do is to look at this transcript twice. Okay, it's on a single slide. First, give it a read for getting the context and getting the content. So we're gonna let you, leave you for a minute or two here. The second time you read it, see if you can experience it in a different way. See if you can notice the ebb and flow, the musicality of it. See if you can see what the mindset of this practitioner was, but then Joel and I are gonna have a look at the actual skills involved because that's what we're wanting to focus on in this part of the webinar. So over to you, James. Guys, we'll leave you for 60 to 90 seconds to have a good look at the single slide. She walks in. Okay. Okay, perhaps you can leave the transcript up there as long as people can still see Joel and I. Joel, I wonder if there's anything you noticed that you'd like to highlight here. How much ground you can cover in such a short time when you're paying attention to what the person, when you're totally focusing in 
on what's important to the person. There's a lot of territory that's covered and five, six exchanges there. Yeah. In terms of engaging rapidly and empathically and, and trying to focus, allow her to, to share and what the focus of this interaction is going to be. Yeah. And giving her space to talk about what's important to her and what her concerns are. So she, she's feeling connected. Yeah. And they are both. The practitioner is feeling connected. Say that again. I said, and the practitioner is feeling connected too. Yeah. Yeah. And they're developing a sense of direction. Very quickly. And within 60 to 90 seconds towards the end there, the practitioner is ready to give information and advice. Yep. So the, we don't need to polarize listening with versus advice giving because right. the musicality of good practice involves both. Well, the urge or the, or the urge to engage the writing reflex could come right off when, you know, both of, both of your people coming in are HIV positive and how important it is for them to take the medication. And you could go straight from the first interaction to the last. Yeah. So it and must you'd be, miss all the good stuff in the middle. Yeah. And and that could be very tempting there. And yet, yeah, absolutely. There's a quality of restraint. And if you think about the, the, the three C's that you let go of, you don't get the impression of a practitioner who's trying to be clever, overcomplicated, or clutter this conversation. I think you do get the impression of, of, of someone who's curious, calm, and compassionate. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, right Just to let you know, Stephen, they, oh, sorry, you lost video, but you've come back. So that's, that's fine. Oh, sorry, guys. Sorry. Um, I wondered whether I could make some comments about the skills involved here. I think in terms of the mindset, um, I imagine most of us can see that there's something special about this mindset. And my feeling is that, that, that this approximates closely to what Johan Kreef was talking about when he talked about skillful football. It's very simple what we see here. It looks and feels like a normal conversation. But it's not easy. And this is a high level of skillfulness. Con, you know, it, it displayed under difficult circumstances. Yep. You agree, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the, the calmness and the mindset of going into conversations that are, that are this big has to be there. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a couple of questions that, that remain unanswered that are worth looking at here. One is what is motivational interviewing? That's come up before and I promised we'd have a look and, and say that and, and address that here. The other is what are the skills being used here and where is, where is their listening? This is a great place to highlight it. So perhaps we'll deal with the more technical thing of where is, mu where is listening in this, in this musical score and then turn to 
Well, in what way is this an illustration of motivational interviewing, which is an, in a way a secondary issue in this webinar, okay? Because motivational interviewing is mostly good practice in talking with someone about change, but there are some specific technical bits which we're gonna highlight in a moment. But just as far as the, the, the musicality and the skills are concerned, Joe, do you notice like how many questions there are? Yeah, there's two questions. Yeah, yeah. Very two well. Open, two two open-ended questions. Carefully chosen and carefully timed. Yes. So, so in a way, it's like the drum coming down, boom, you know, at the right time on the four by four or whatever. It's definitely there and it's well-timed and it fits the purpose, okay? Yeah. But what about in between? Well, that's, that's where the gold is, is all the in-between stuff. It's in, it's in the statements or reflective, reflective listening statements that, um, the listening statements, I think, as you say, Steve, um, that, um, that the practitioner is saying. And if you look at, if you look at all the different roads that this practitioner could have gone down, particularly when he doesn't want to use condoms and what sort of writing reflex that could, that could kind of bring forth in a practitioner, you know, and this person thought, yes, that's important, but that would, but whose agenda is it to, to yeah. go there right now? And yeah. so the question is asked, what would be most helpful for us to talk about? Yeah, your that's condoms, your medication, your diet, or perhaps something else. That's where motivational interviewing kicks in, which we're going to turn to because it yep. kicks in there when the subject of change comes up and it kicks in there big time. But to begin with, what we notice are two empathic listening statements from the practitioner in a row. This baby is very important to you. It's not one of the things that I hear you say, there's no dribble, there's no waffle very it's a very beautiful from the side of the left foot of a footballer on the outside of the boot it's beautiful <laughs> this baby is very important to you and you want your baby to be healthy right and and if you notice she didn't say i want my baby to be healthy the practitioner kind of added in what she might say or what seems like would be a good fit for what she had said before. And so that, that's an important skill in listening. Exactly. And it, it makes for a very efficient conversation because the mother didn't need to say that. She just said, yes, that's right. You got me. And I told my husband and he's supportive. We, we, you know, we want these things, but ba 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 ba. So listening is an incredibly efficient way of establishing connection and moving forward and making progress. Because once yeah. people feel understood, they're happy to get more specific. And halfway down, when she says, I want to talk about the medication, that's when motivational interviewing comes in. And it's founded on the same basic musical tune. It's not something different. It's the same dance with the same dance steps as good, client-centered counseling practice, which is what this is, but it's focused on change. And yes. what, so to answer our, our friend who says, what is motivational interviewing in simple language? It's a style for having a conversation about change in which 
the mother rather than the practitioner says why and how they want to change or what they want to change, why, and perhaps how. Although when it comes to the how, the mother says, I need to know a little bit more about the medicine. So motivational interviewing is a conversation about change in which listening statements are used to encourage the person to say for themselves why and how they make change rather than you. I did that quite well, Joel, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I would just add that it's a collaborative conversation. Good stuff, good stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and that's what that's what that last bit is. It's a collaboration about what should we focus on with the time that we have without saying those other things aren't important, but this is what's important to the mom. Yeah. Yeah. And helping someone clarify why they want to why they want to change something is really important before addressing the how. Absolutely. The, the mother's done that for both of them such that they are now ready for this practitioner to give, this, to, to give the mother advice about missing doses. So motivational interviewing is not incompatible with giving someone advice. No, not it's, at all. It's integrated with it. But look, I, Joel, I think it's time, I was, looking at my watch, listen, I think it's time now to step back, move away okay. from motivational interviewing and consider um, a bit more Q&A um, and then I've got some concluding take-home um, points to make. But Joel, just before we do that, I noticed that at the side of my eye on the Q&A, I noticed somebody making a point about, can you use this with people who are deaf? Are deaf? Deaf. Oh. Yeah. I was about to say, well, maybe in a gestalters kind of way, you could use it with people that are no, no. deaf. No, no, stop that. Yeah, yeah, stop that. No, with somebody who's DEAF, and I just yeah. thought I'd tell you the story, right? Um, it was quite recently, someone I was working with in a training course went home afterwards and sent me this wonderful email which said, I've just been working with somebody who's deaf through a, a translator, so to speak. And I found that these listening skills were, were truly awesome. And I noticed the change talk. Um, now, this was on Skype with a translator. And just like your story from Burma, th over the barriers of, of, of language and culture, it is possible uh, to work with people who are hard of hearing or, or are deaf. So um, I just caught that out the side of my eye and I wanted to respond to that colleague who raised that question. <laughs> It, well, in some ways, it's it, and it, not in some ways. It's another. It's another form of language. Yeah. And I think, I think I've I've done trainings where they've had um, people come in and sign the trainings because a couple of the participants were deaf. Yeah. And I got the opportunity to spend time with the translators and the participants, and they thought that it had. They both thought that it had great promise. Yeah. As a as a skill. To yeah. work with folks, of course, they would need to 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 adapt it into their own language and into their own way of being and their own their own unique culture. The greater but there was nothing incompatible with the work. In fact, the greater the barrier between you and someone else, whether that be class, culture, sensory deficit, or whatever, the greater is the value of listening. Yes, indeed. That's one thing I found in my 
in my travels is that you can overcome a lot of language barriers by just trying to find a way to listen and communicate with each other. So we agree about that. And, and James, we're ready to move on to the last Q&A. And then we've got some interesting concluding comments. Uh, so we have a question. Many of us are doing our consultations over the phone at the moment, and it's much harder with no visual cues. Do you have any tips on that? No, I don't. I can tell you, I can tell you what I do in the work I'm doing now when I'm doing it over the telephone is I, um, and I've never met the person and I don't have any visuals. I actually sometimes close my eyes and kind of imagine you know, sitting with them and really try to tune into what, try to listen to and tune into how they're speaking. You know, it's, it's, it's like, for me, it's like listening to an audio book sometimes where, or, you know, I can just create, try to create what's happening in my mind. Cause that, that really helps me. And I said, no, no, I don't have any answers because I don't have any experience of this. But as you were talking, Joel, I'm, it, it obviously is striking me that it's like talking to somebody who's blind. Anyway, it's just, it's a passing thought, but yeah. I genuinely don't have experience of this and would prefer not to try and be clever about it at this point. Yeah. Okay, Eleanor asks, you said regarding the two questions that they are perfectly timed. How do you know when the time is right or not right to ask a question? From the reaction of the person in front of you. I would you say. read my mind. And if it's done in an empathic way, even if the question is off base, I've found that people will appreciate that I'm trying to be helpful and trying to understand. The same with, the same with reflective listening or empathy statements. Uh, we've, we have an anonymous question. I think a really important skill in MI and listening is silence. Would you agree with that? Can, can I jump into that first, Steve? And it seems, that, it seems that over the last few years, when I've done role plays with people in my trainings, pe people have started asking me, do you, do you intentionally be silent? And, and my answer is no. But quite often, I'm listening to what the person's saying, and I'm thinking about how I'm going to respond. And there's a pause. Or they're thinking about what I've asked or what I've reflected. And that lets me know that they're digesting it, and they're thinking about it. I think silence is an important thing, um, not, not so much in a, in, a, in a psychoanalytic way where where you, you, you kind of utilize it as a therapeutic skill, um, but it allows time for ideas to breathe and thoughts to form and new things to connect. And from the child learning a puzzle or a task, an athlete trying to get on top of the skill, a client in a consulting room, a group of people in a classroom, in a sports team. Silence and a bit of space to reflect and ingest 
and feel connected is, is gold dust. It's complete gold dust. Yeah. And it's extraordinary the extent to which we fall into the trap of filling space with mouthfuls of busy talk. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I... Okay, one more. Yeah. Um, from Gainer. What happens if you feel that the client's goals are not what will bring them to the best place for them? Interesting one. Yeah, and with five minutes to go, and I know that there's a few things we need to cover. I would ask Gainer to grab hold of my email and write to me. And Gainer, I absolutely promise I'll write back. Okay? But I, I really don't feel we've got the time for this right now. And you Gainer, can CC me on the email too if you want, and I'll jump in the conversation. Promise Gainer. Okay. Because it's a big one, and I don't think we've got time for it. And yeah. And it's Sorry. a core part of MI, the whole thing around autonomy support. Yeah. And we don't have time to jump into it. You know, and I think the, I can just share really quickly. The hardest thing about my career has been in working with addictions. The hardest thing is to see people who know, and I think it amazes me about being a psychologist, is why we choose to do things as people that we know aren't going to lead to good, good outcomes, but we do them anyway. James, you might, um, have, you might have an opportunity for one more question. And certainly, uh, Joan and I are going to try and answer it super briefly. Super briefly. Okay. For motivational interviewing to take place, do the clients need to trust you? Yes. Next question. I, I, have, I have too long of an answer for that, Steve. I, I don't think the answer is no. <laughs> I, think, I think they need to believe that, that you can help them and that you're interested in who they are. I think I saw one from Cape Town, from Loren Jordan. Oh, yeah, I've got that one. Who do you look up to as someone who lives your philosophy? Uh, I don't know what my philosophy really is, to be honest. Um, I, I know about a set of values. And I think most of them have been expressed in different ways in this webinar. And I, I rather talk less about mine than about other people right now and what I notice in the world around us in this time of uncertainty. And uh, I would point to um, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand as a leader. I watched her last night sitting sort of cross-legged on her sofa, talking to the people of New Zealand. This is their prime minister. And I was bowled over by uh, her humanity, her ability to connect and to empathize with people um, so that is somebody I would definitely look up to, whatever her political persuasion is. I don't really know what it is. I was very struck by that. And in my world of sport, I, uh, I look up to somebody called Jurgen Klopp, who I think embodies the values that we've been talking about and is, the, is truly brilliant at listening 
and true to his values in, in, in every word that he utters. So uh, Lorraine in, in Cape Town, I'm sorry if that's a bit of a brief answer, but I, I yeah. Okay, Charles. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll be brief. Um, and, and one of the things that, that um, you know, having, having lived in New Zealand and being a New Zealand citizen now living in Australia, um, and I agree with you. I think, I think uh, Jacinda Ardern is doing a magnificent job in, in, in what she's had to deal with since becoming Prime Minister of New Zealand and her ability to, to, to listen and try to understand but make hard decisions. Now, what's really interesting to me is living over here, the Prime Minister is on the other side of the political fence. Uh, Scott Morrison is a, would be more of a conservative um, but I've been watching how he's been managing the, this issue, right? The, the, the COVID-19 issue. And um, the poll just came out that he's one of the most popular prime ministers since Kevin Rudd. And he's, I don't know all of what his political persuasion is, but he's been able to really um, connect with the Australian people in a, what seems to be a genuine way and in an empathic way and trying to trying not just to say what he thinks people want to hear but trying to really understand what's going on and make decisions and now the interesting thing is we have two different countries two different political ideologies and they're both incredibly successful at, at managing the COVID-19 virus um, and they're having two somewhat different strategies in doing it. So that, that's interesting to me as somebody who, who thinks about the stuff. Um, the other thing that, that I just want to say quickly is when, when you first asked that question, James, I, said, I thought, well, motivational interviewing it in the philosophical framework that I live my life by. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a psychological counseling skill that resonates with the way I think about things that has some overlap with some of the values and the philosophies that underpin the way I choose to live my life. Um, you know, I don't always get it right. And I, and I scratch my head about decisions I make all the time. But I, I really think it's important to realize that MI isn't, isn't, a, um, isn't an ideology. And it isn't, it isn't, it isn't even a psychological theory, you know, as far as I know. Steve's nodding, no, it's not. So, you know, it's not yeah. a philosophy to live your life by, but there's some really good skills and ideas that can help, help negotiate the world. So what, what do you are with yourself? So what for you are the, are, are the take-home messages from this webinar? If I give you just, just half a minute on takeaway messages. Okay. All right, well, I'm gonna say right off, Steve, the first thing is your six C's. Um, I'm, gonna, um, I'm gonna pinch that from you, if you don't mind, uh, for training. Um, and I'm gonna incorporate it into my practice a little bit more. Um, the, the other one is that, um, that I don't have to have all the answers in a time of uncertainty. You know, and as a parent and as a psychologist and as someone who, who wants to be helpful, actually, I need to listen and not provide solutions unless they're immediate and there's something I can actually offer somebody that's helpful. Um, and the third one is that the more I 
I, I talk about motivational interviewing and I listen to other people talk about it, the more I realize that, you know, we're still looking over the, the side of the cliff and it's, it's a really deep cliff and we can't see the bottom. And even after 30 years, you know, we know a lot, but we still got a lot more to learn. Thank you, Joe. And for, and for me, the, I guess the take home messages are the ability to empathize and make listening statements is something that's in all of us. That it involves a, a calm and curious mindset. That it's something that can be practiced in everyday life. And it's well worth focusing on in this time of uncertainty. So there are the take home messages from Joel and myself. And I'd like to end this webinar by making an appeal, telling you a story and making an appeal. Um, I'd like to thank James, who's been a total rock for us. Joel and I don't have the faintest clue about this technology. So just take this moment, James, to thank you, my brother. You've been so helpful. And you've done this as a volunteer, and I thank you very much from the bottom of my heart, man. Oh, thanks for those kind words. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be involved. Thank you. Let me um, just tell you a story. Ten days ago, I got in touch with um, somebody who runs a not-for-profit organization. It happened to be in Cape Town, but honestly, this could be anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere or in a deprived community in the Northern Hemisphere. His name's Ralph Bovers. And he runs something called Guardians of the National Treasure to support the well-being of children in a particularly deprived community called Lavender Hill in Cape Town. And 10 days ago, when I spoke to him about helping to raise some money for this not-for-profit, his concern was about football boots and football strips, which is what led me to him in the first place. Literally, just in the last 10 days, his needs have changed from sporting equipment to food boxes to really quite frightened and frightening efforts to get food and help to people in a rather rapidly descending situation in that particular township, which is probably a mirror of what might be happening elsewhere. Ralph was going to come on to this call and say hello to you all. And he couldn't. Literally, this morning, I hear he's in a truck getting apples. That's what he's doing. Now, look, I, behind the scenes, did a check on the financial probity and structures of this not-for-profit. And I'm more than satisfied that Ralph is a golden human being running a superb organization under uh, the most incredible circumstances right now because the impact of lockdown in, a, in, in, in many of the poorer parts of the world isn't on infection, it's, it's the side effects of the lockdown that are, are, are really devastating. And that includes loss of jobs and access to food. So what James is going to do is place a URL in the Q&A box, and this is a call from myself and from Joel, and from Ralph in Cape Town to plug a donation in, and that URL should be able to 
lead you directly into making a donation. And I promise you one thing, that I will be returning to all of you in the form of, a, of an email in due course and informing you of a couple of things. How much money was raised, a video message from Ralph, and what our plans are for future projects of this kind. So on that note, can I just double check with James that the URL is indeed yeah, if, if, someone, if someone could just do me a, a big favor and just type in a question, what is the URL or sim something similar to that? And that then gives me the opportunity to paste the URL and answer that question, which, which we can all see. So Mary, Mary somebody, Lana, what is the URL? This will be fun. thank you, Mary. There we go. Thanks so much. So I will. What I do know is that what Ralph does is he literally goes to the bank and takes the money out and spends it. That's, and, and it's a pretty direct line. Um, thanks for that, Mary. And the URL. So now hopefully, hopefully you can now see that in the, uh, in the answered tab of the, of the Q and A. Lots of people asking, what is the URL? The latest question, Caitlin Hayton says, what is a URL? Sarah says the same thing. <laughs> I knew that would happen. Somebody, Neela, so, can you email Lavender Hill bank details, please? URL, please. URL is there, says Margaret. I don't see it. So in, in the Q&A, there's open questions. There's an answered questions tab, which is the, the middle of the three, and it's, it's, it's um, pasted in there. And the, ah. And the question came from Salm, Salma, I think the name is. Ah. So hopefully you can all see that. I will also include that year out in the follow-up email that contains the recording of the webinar tomorrow. Yeah, someone's saying the link isn't clickable. Not clickable. That's quite a verb. Clickable. People are raising their hands. Don't have an answered questions tab. Steve, do you have a do you have a chat function on your Zoom controls? Because that that's not visible to me. If 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 you do, we can share it in the chat. La la la. Not that I can see. Just let me have a quick look here. No, I can't say I do. Okay, well, all I can say then is I will, we will then share that year out in the follow-up email that goes out. Um, and people, I can tell you, if you plug into Google, Guardians of the National Treasure, isn't that the most wonderful phrase? Guardians of the National Treasure. That'll link you straight to it. That'll take you straight to it. Guardians of the National Treasure. Yeah. Mike Townsend sees he's seen it. And Jody Pitt, thank you so much. You've gone and you've gone and put it in there. So if you look up to Jody Pitt, it's about ten questions up. And Kathy Gumas says there. Thank you, Kathy. I know you're in Belfast. Hey, Kathy. Works fine. Thank you, my darling. That's. So, I'm so glad that link works for you, Kathy. It probably means for other people it does as well. Otherwise, Guardians of the National Treasure. And at this point. I'm wondering whether we stay online, whether there's a few more questions. 
there's about 400 people still online, Joel, James. Yeah. I've I, was just gonna, I was just going to um, go get a glass of wine to toast our first, our first thing. I'll be, give me one second. I'm happy to hang out and ask, answer questions and chat more. Go and get your glass. Okay. Lucky man. Um, but James, I'm happy to hang on. Um, because there are um, over 350 people still online. James, are you all right? Or is it very late? There's a time to wind up. I leave this decision to you. Um, it is late, but I'm fine, to, I'm fine to carry on for another you know, 20 minutes, half hour, if, if the questions are still coming in. Let's carry on um, for another 10, yeah. 15 minutes max, James. Yeah. Could I just say that we'll be sending everybody an email? Yeah? We yeah. will. Yeah, great? with the recording. And also, I'll ensure that that links that links in the email as well for the for the donations too. So my apologies that if if people can't copy and paste that, but that will go out tomorrow. Okay, good stuff. So um, you'll get an email from us within 24 hours. So those that need to uh, be in touch can. Yeah. There's something. There's a, I see there's somebody by the name of Elizabeth Egan here. I want to say that um, my fantasy wish, Elizabeth, is that you is that you're um, is that you're related to Gerard Egan, who's somebody who I believe is still alive and has done the most brilliant work. And his model of helping is something that's inspired me. Well worth looking up, people. Gerard Egan, wonderful man. Now, I'm happy to take questions if people want to post them. Cheers, Steve. Just your help. James? Um, okay, what is the best way to practice reflections? Most useful thing that, that I heard was from my good friend, Jeff Allison, a trainer in communication, who said, if you want to get on top of this, you're talking to somebody, See if you in your own mind can capture the essence of what they say and just hand it back to them. So don't hand back a whole lot of words. Capture the essence in your mind of what they're saying and, and be bold enough to hand it back to them. I would say also practice in easy circumstances rather than tough ones. Yes. So when you're having an easy, simple conversation, a kid is perfect to practice with. But yes. when you're having a nice, easy conversation with somebody, see if you can capture the essence of what they're saying and hand it back to them and watch what happens. Yes. Um, so that, that's, what, that's what I would suggest. Another, another, another a tip would be ask a brilliant open question of somebody and then say to yourself, right, now I'm going to try and capture the essence. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that, that I used to do in, um, in New Zealand, the drug and alcohol service, is that, you know, some colleagues that were also interested, we would just practice with each other, you know, and you would say something and, they, and you know, and you just practice with each other if you have people around. But I, I totally agree, you know, in the home, out with friends, with, with your colleagues in the, um, in, the, in, the, um, in the break room, in meetings, you know, just, Ease into it, you know, ease into it. There are also videos, the Cleveland Clinic, if you can remember that. You look that up on YouTube, 
you'll find some wonderful Cleveland Clinic Empathy videos. That's useful for grasping the kind of mindset. Um, and I think it's important to remember that you're not practicing a new skill. You'll notice in conversations between people that the skill is used and it's inside you. So what you're doing is, is uncovering and rediscovering something that's already inside you. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Start simple. Start in an easy setting, not where you feel like you have to do it right or you have to, like with motivational interviewing, you know, you just start somewhere, but start easy. And I think that, you know, listening and reflective listening is, is the other half of, of, of empathic listening. And what I found in working with people is that's the steepest part of the learning curve of motivational interviewing where people go, oh, it's just too hard. It's too much. And if they can get confident in doing that, then it's easier to kind of start bringing on the other aspects of, of MI. Yeah, I found it very easy to teach kids the skill of reflection because their minds are less cluttered and they're more naturally curious. I remember my daughter at age of eight or nine, I modeled it and she repeated it. And she's 10, she's 10 years older now, she's, she's 18. And we have conversations using reflection naturally all the time. The older you get and the more cluttered your mind gets, the tougher it is to let go of the Absolutely. clutter. Yeah, so Absolutely. it's back to one of those C's, which, which is clutter. Now look, I've, I've stopped the Q&A scrolling because I, I noticed Greg Spencer's asked about against empathy. And then Hannah's got a question and Kimberly's got a question. I wonder if you mind if, I, if, if we just try and see if we can get through some of those. James, Joel? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think against empathy is a, a, it's a big question. I think Paul Bloom has some good things to say. And I think that there's a little bit of a – hello, Rosie. Um, I think there's a little bit of a mismatch with what he's saying and what we're saying. It is a bit. It's, a, it's Greg Spencer. He's at three minutes, 3.41, 0.341, just so James knows where we are. I think let's go down through those questions. Greg, I think I agree with Joel. It, it's worth looking at, at uh, Bloom's work. But I think, I think what he's talking about is the experience of empathy, not the conveying it in the form of listening in a conversation. Our webinar has been about that skill. So I don't feel anything that we have gone through today um, has a lot of bearing on what he's saying. He's talking about the experience of empathy. And I think if I get it, Greg, it's that you're more likely to experience empathy for your own folk than for others. And this isn't necessarily such a constructive thing because you're more likely to see other people as not like you. And so you can't just say, oh, empathy is a good thing for everybody all the time. And I don't think that's what we're saying. What we are saying, however, is that uncertainty is widespread in conversation. And when you are in conversation with somebody, the practice of empathic listening has no dangers. It has no downsides in my view, okay? I wonder whether he's confusing empathy with identification. Mm. I, and, and I'm a bit confused about that. But I, well, that, I know. 
I noticed this leads nicely into Hannah's next question about empathy fatigue. So can, do you mind if we don't be too ponderous here and just move through them? No, that was right where I was going to go to. Go ahead. Hannah's highlighting something that I've noticed myself and my family, which is I've got the same fears and concerns of, as other people, and it's really hard to listen and to be helpful. And as a father, you know, I've got four kids, and I notice one of my kids is going through a hard time, and I'm not that hot at listening at a time like this. And I, you know, Hannah, I can't solve that for us, you know? I can only say that I'm aware of it and I try and make amends if I can, you know? But I've noticed I'm so preoccupied with so many things, it's back to clutter, that it's really hard to, to empathize with somebody that, that, that I love very dearly. Um, and so what we have to do, I guess, Hannah, is first of all, notice our own feelings, our own underlying feelings, and see if we can park them. Because if we can't park them, we can't listen. Or it's much harder. It's a different context, isn't it, Steve? You know, and, and context is really important. And it's hard to be the eagle when I'm also the mouse. Correct. <laughs> you know, Correct. When, when my heart or something that I value or that's important to me is, is central part of the conversation that's going on. It's hard sometimes to step back, but I notice when I do, it, it, it's like taking a breath and yeah. it gives me some time to, to think about, you know, what, what is this other per what is this person saying? Yeah, yeah. You know, what am I missing? What am I not hearing? Um, and and I, I do think I, I, the, uh, um, a psychologist that I supervise, we had a session today and and she was talking about a new client that she's working with who has a horrific trauma history. And she said, you know, by the time she got to her first husband committing suicide, she said, I literally felt like I was going to fall out of my chair. Yeah. Now, now this, this, this woman also just had a, a, a friend of hers commit suicide two weeks ago. Yeah. And so it was just a lot all at once. And what she was talking about was, she, she couldn't give anymore. She couldn't empathize anymore because it, she, had, she was full. Yeah. You know, and, and that's how we have, to, we have to be able to find a way to, to not so much detach, but to really kind of park our stuff for a little while when we go into these conversations. I mean, I think, I think listening is a very intentional thing in terms of the context we're talking about. And that's part of the mindset of it. Is, is I'm going my, what I'm doing right now, what I intend to do right now is give this person my full presence and attention. And sometimes it'll be easier than others and go for the Absolutely. a bit easier. Absolutely. And you can create a context in everyday life when it's a bit easier than other times. Sure. Or when okay. clients are talking about something I'm struggling with at the same time and there's that parallel process going on. Yeah. You know, and I'm wanting to say, yeah, I'm right with you, brother, <laughs> you know, but I know that's not going to be helpful. No. We have had a couple of people ask to be reminded of those six C's that you mentioned. Yeah. So you'd like to just revisit those quickly. Yeah. You want to, 
please don't quote me on this because it's just come up in the last <laughs> flipping week, right? So well, I've already got it written down, Steve. Yeah, I already got it quote you. You know, it has no value other than just to stimulate thinking, right? But it, it, it's for, for listening well, you want to let go of cleverness. Um, complexity, scratching your head, wondering what someone's saying, uh, wonder, what are they, and clutter. Okay. Now, clutter includes a desire to solve the problem, wondering about a whole lot of other things that might be happening. You want to free your mind of that. And you want to hold on to curiosity. That's the fundamental. That's what kids teach us, the value of. And you want to try and be calm. That's the second C. And compassionate. So cleverness, complexity, clutter on the downside or the let go side and curious, calm and compassionate on the upside. It's just one way of looking at it. Okay, James. Fantastic. And just to, just a thank you to everyone that said they've clicked through and made donations already. We all really appreciate that. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Way to go, folks. I cannot tell you what Ralph Bovers is going to be like. In fact, can I say to those people, go onto that donation page and have a look at the interview. I think it's a BBC uh, interview with Ralph. He's lovely. He is the most wonderful human being. Right. Um, Kimberly says, could we go back to the previous question? What if the goals of your clients won't bring them to the best outcome? And Hugh Gilmore says, can you have a go at Gainer's question? Wasn't this Gainer's question? If there's some kind of um, mismatch between what you think is best for somebody and what the person feels is best. So, so I'll, I'll share a little bit on this. This is a, this is an interesting a very interesting kind of sometimes ethical, if not sometimes moral dilemma that comes up in the work that we do with people. And um, one of the things that we that I that I, I get the opportunity to go to places like Singapore and Hong Kong and um, a good bit to train where you know the cultural differences you know are, are there, and this is a very common question. And it probably comes up in lots of other places in different contexts. And usually in the second day of a motivational interviewing training is that somebody will say, my patients, my clients just want me to tell them what to do. And, and I usually think about that and I say, well, and I remember I said, well, what, what, what do they do when you tell them what to do? And the woman said, most of the time they don't do it. And then I said, then what do you do? She said, I tell them again. And my take on this is if somebody is in a risky place and, and they're really struggling or with coming up with some solutions or what they've come up with, you know, it, it, it could put them at risk or in harm's way in some way what I usually try to do is I try to validate the fact that, they've, that they're thinking about it and they're coming up with some ideas. And then I usually ask them, would it be all right with you if I put a couple ideas on the table to see what you think about? And then I share 
you know, my, my suggestions, recommendations, but I've got their, their permission because there's two things that people tend not to like about advice is unsolicited advice and being told things they already know. So I try to avoid those two traps. And more often than not, that creates a whole nother conversation where they might sort of say, well, I hadn't thought about that. Can you tell me more about it? And the, 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 the challenging part of this is that people, in my experience as a human being and, and, and working with people, is that we're gonna do what we're gonna do. You know, and, and sometimes there's nothing that can get in the way of us doing that, no matter what people do with us, to us, or for us. And so on a, on a very fundamental level, I genuinely accept that people are autonomous human beings, even though I may not agree with the decisions that they make. I'm done. And the it's, it's quite an issue, this, and it's something we've grappled with over decades. And it's very difficult to, to use most, something like motivational interviewing in a constructive way if there isn't a shared sense of, of direction. So put that way, we, we, we describe this as a focusing issue. And the ideal is to get some kind of agreement on what the change is that you feel, you both feel is worth looking at. And I worry about being clever or complex here. So you can see I'm living out the letting go, two of those letting go C's. And I'm often struck, and it's just a different way of saying what uh, Joel has said, which is I'm often struck by being genuine, sincere, and stepping back out of the conversation with the person. Mm. And that stepping back and outside of the conversation gave rise to something that we called a gender mapping, which you can catch in descriptions of motivational interviewing, where you'd basically step away and say, look, we could be talking about this or this or this. What do you reckon? And it gives you an opportunity for frank exchange. And that happened in the slide you put up. Did it? Yes, it did. Yeah. It you happened. Do you want to talk about the condoms or, you know, your medications? It's exactly right. It's exactly right. That was a, a gender mapping in, in just like one little crystal clear, skillful sentence. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm starting to scroll down. Uh, uh, am I wise here to just do it in this way? Yeah. Anna Chisholm seems quite active. Favorite evoking question, set of questions. Any you go to often as they seem to have a great effect. And I, I don't know, you know, I don't want to be clever here because really the best evoking question is the one that you notice um, breathes fire and life into the person you're speaking to. Um, and I don't think there are any. People are so different. Every conversation is different. But keep, it, keep the question simple, clear. The word notice, I think, is incredibly important. And I know good sports coaches are using that all the time. What do you notice about that high jump? And how do you feel about it? Um, so the open questions that contain the word notice are incredibly helpful. Um, for in motivational interviewing, as you quite rightly pick up, Anna, the open questions are evocative. In other words, they focused on change. So it, it would be something like, 
to a, to an athlete, it would be, what kind of coaching do you think is going to help you be your best? How's that? Right? That's going to evoke quite an answer that's going to have the coach reflecting about themselves. Or to a, a school teacher, to a pupil, what do you think is going to help you get on top of the skill the best? What do you need now? So questions that focus on people's needs. I don't know, Anna, it's quite a long list, eh? Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about, you know, and, and when people have a dilemma, you know, and then they're feeling, they have mixed thoughts and feelings about doing something, sometimes offering them a reflection, you know, that looks at both sides of it. You know, on the, on the one hand, I can see how, um, how alcohol can be really important to you and in many ways has become your best friend because it's the only thing there, you know, that, that actually understands. And at the same time, it seems like what I hear you saying that it's taking its toll. And, yeah. it, you know, and it's starting to, to add up in terms of your marriage and the amount of money you're spending and, and other things that are important to you. Is that right? And then if they go, yeah, I've never really thought of it that way, then what do you think about that? How do you, you know, how do you put those two things together? And it's interesting because people, it slows people down and they have to think about how they hold two diametrically opposed ideas together. Yeah. And quite often when people are struggling with something, they tend to compartmentalize things either here or there. It's good, it's bad. And sometimes a good reflection followed with a nice open-ended question, like Steve said, can really be quite evocative for people particularly if I'm not judging the, the good things, you know, and, and siding with the less good things about something someone's struggling with. Yeah, yeah. You guys mustn't hesitate to um, send me a message on Twitter. My son's trying to uh, help me learn this medium, okay? And we'll be, we'll, we'll be sending you an email and you can connect with uh, me in other ways as well. Um, I wanted to briefly address, guys, we're, we're, we're half an hour over the time. James, it's late for you and Joel. And I think we should give ourselves just another few minutes and then, and then wind Perfect. back. Yeah. Okay. I wanted, I want, I'd like to address a question by Fintan Kennedy. Uh, I don't know where you are, Fintan, but I think it's a great question. If you're having a difficult relationship with somebody, how do you employ MI to improve it without the other person feeling you're trying to manipulate them? That's a great question because I've often puzzled over, you know, is MI relevant at home? And I, I, I feel this, Fintan, you know, I don't think you should use MI with a partner in a difficulty. I think it, 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 it smacks of in, in, inauthenticity. I think that's what you're pinpointing. They notice you being inauthentic. And, yeah. um, I, but I don't think that applies to listening, which is why this webinars focused on listening. So I think to practice listening skills and to self-regulate yourself in a relationship so that you can listen is well worth practicing. And then there's something else, Minton, which is a bit provocative. How's about this? Don't use MI at home to address a problem. That's typically the terrain of MI is focused on problems. I'm starting to develop a different sense of this that the place of the really valuable place of MI is in helping people to grow and thrive. That's why I went into education and now I'm in sport. 
because yeah, it happened with an arena where all sports coaches united by wanting to help people thrive. MI's got a beautiful place there. So if you're at home and you see an opportunity with, a, with, with your partner, with a kid, to help them thrive, use MI for all you are worth. And they will appreciate it and they won't feed you manipulating them because you're being authentic in your pursuit of their interests. Okay. The moment you start using it to solve a problem, like a dirty room of a kid or a wife who's, you want a partner who's shouting at you or whatever, I think it's inauthentic and I wouldn't do it. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. I had a, I had a, my dad was a psychologist and I remember one night he and my older brother were in an argument and, um, and I'm guessing what my dad did was he stepped in the psychologist kind of role. And my brother probably would have been 14 at the time said, don't do that double trick psychology on me, you know? And what he was asking for was him to be genuine and not, not to try to be a therapist in the moment when there was a relational issue to be going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think there are, as Steve was saying, I think that in our personal relationships and friendships and there's a key place for listening and, and, and wanting things to be better when they're not so good. Um, but I think the listening part is, is, is the key, not the change part. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we're going to wind up very soon. And I noticed a message from Isabel Duarte, whom I think I know. I think you're in Portugal. It's wonderful to hear from you. Catherine Reynolds, similar theme. Do you think we all have to be better listening skills after coming through the, the current COVID crisis? I mean, that's why we put this webinar on, because it's not just about managing ourselves and, and helping others in the current situation. But as we come out of it, there's going to be a lot of confusion because the world's not going to be the same. And no. Yeah. Whether you're a, a parent, a sports coach, a friend, a simple open question like how you're getting on is worth its weight in gold. And when you ask a really good question, the main message from this webinar is to reflect for all you're worth after asking it. You've knocked on the door. When you go inside, use reflection. And I think... Uh, and hope that um, this is something that we can help ourselves and others to do over the coming weeks and months. And I'm wondering whether on that rather somber note, I didn't mean to be too somber, <laughs> we could wind up now, Joel. Uh, yeah. Are you happy about that? Yeah, 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 you know, you know, um, absolutely. Absolutely. And perhaps, perhaps what we and can... There is no good place to end a good conversation. No, that's right. That's right. We've got to go now, guys. And perhaps uh, uh, we'll discuss with James the possibility of holding on to these questions and uh, working through them ourselves and sending you a, a single document with answers to them. Maybe we'll try and do that. No promises. It'll depend on James's wizardry. So look... Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. I'll just draw people's attention to the next webinar on this series coming up on the 14th of May. 
the title of which is Sport and Empathy, and we'll include the registration link in the follow-up email from today if people are interested in, in joining us in two weeks' time. That's it'll, super. And, and, and it'll, be, it'll be a spin on a, on, a, on a topic, that's for sure. No, we're going to have some audience there, right? It'll um, be fun. And uh, Kathy, thank you for helping us clarify that the link, link works. Please donate. It's just an incredibly awesome uh, gift to give Ralph. And I'll be phoning him immediately after the seminar to tell him that people have really responded. And bless you and thank you very much. Um, yeah. And so on that note, goodbye, good luck, and thank you to all of you, wherever you are. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. It was, it's, 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 I've learned a lot tonight, and I look forward to further conversations, Steve. So James, you'll presumably knock people off. Yeah, we can just end the meeting now. So thanks and good night from me as well. And we'll see you hopefully in two weeks time. Yeah, so I see even now there's like just a moment ago, there were still 150 people online. It dropped down from, I don't know what the peak was, but it steadily dropped down. And it was that drop down that I thought, Let's not overdo it now, you know? Yeah, no, that was good. Okay, there you are. Put you on the big picture. That was fun, Steve. Yeah, I thought it was good. Um, I found the stuff about MI, all the stuff about MI, I was going, oh, no, let's not talk about MI, let's not talk about MI, because I felt like, no, well, you know, we, we, the subject is listening, and let's just get through a few, do a few simple things well. But it's, it's inevitable. And the, question, the questions are all coming in about, you know, am I? So what can we do, you know? James, how did you find it, my man? Um, I'll tell you what, I was nervous when we started. And at some point, the nervousness went away. Yeah. And I, I felt like that we, that there was, it was good that there were same, some things we knew, but a lot of it was unknown. So that made it fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't feel like we were struggling to fill time, which was good. No. I wasn't tracking how people were dropping off over the course of it. Yeah. Because that would be too much to attend to. But if we had 400 people at the end of it, that was really good. Yeah. And, really I, and right towards the end, it started to really drop off after we gave our takeaway messages. Yeah, that's right. And that's why I, I, I feel next time what will be better is to keep an eye on the clock and aim to finish like 10 minutes before. Right. So that people get the feeling these guys don't go on too long. Boom, boom, boom. We wind up five minutes early. You know what I mean? That will be a nice thing. I just noticed. Yeah, well, people, people plan out the time, particularly if it's during the daytime. It's not like, you know, a Joe Rogan podcast where you know it's going to go for three hours. So... Yeah. Um, but that's not what we're wanting to do. So that's fine. Listen, I'm just um, noticing James has sent uh, an email saying I can't access that control. And I don't Which know what... control? Do you know what he's talking about? You, like people still listening to us? <laughs> that's possible. Um, James has disappeared as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so if people are still hearing us, that's okay. They can send us feedback. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I really enjoyed it. I mean, you know, it's the first time we've ever done anything like this. And, Yo, you know, finding a way to work together, this has been great. And this seems to be a nice way for us to connect. And we'll probably get feedback from folk. Um, I, so. I did ask James to see if he could uh, do some kind of polling, but it, that didn't happen. It might have been happening um, without us being aware of it. You might look. Um, yeah, I don't know. James disappeared. I mean, it's, he has little kids and it's one o'clock in the morning. So he's probably like, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to be up in four hours. I'm out of here. Yes. All right, my man. still recording, so, you know, you're still recording us. But I think let's hang up now. So I've got okay, to get And thank you so much. I thought it was great. Yeah, no, it was good, Steve. I enjoyed it. I think, I think, I think, you know, it'll be good. It's good. It's the good. Numbers it'll be good to think about it and reconnect in a couple of days and see what we think. Thank you very much, Shane. Right on, bro. Good man. Bye. See you next time. Yeah.